As you study the U.S. family, you'll find that it is true that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Now, you've heard that, and that's, that's a sobering statistic, but let me show you some of the results of what's happening uh, in the U.S. We have people who are living together outside of marriage. Uh, that whole idea has grown tenfold. And now 40% of all children born in this country are born out of wedlock. 40%. 61% of young people, once they graduate high school, and 61% of Christian family teenagers, once they graduate high school, move on into young adult life, 61% turn away from their faith. They turn away from their faith and they drift spiritually at the time in their life where there is more binge drinking and drug use than perhaps any other season. The U.S. leads the world in the pervasive use of pornography. 61% of our young people from Christian homes drift from their faith or turn from their faith once they graduate high school and they move into the years where they're making the the biggest decisions of their life vocationally, relationally, and financially. While they are adrift spiritually, they're making a decision of who they will marry, what they will be in life, their vocation, and they're buying their first home, some of the greatest most significant financial choices that they make. And when you realize where 61% of those of Christian homes are in those formative decision-making years, you can see how then that contributes to this first statistic of 50% of all marriages ending in divorce, especially when so many are forming out of a heart that is far from God. You can see how 40% of kids are born outside of wedlock. And we've we've got to look at this and realize this this is unacceptable. And we've got to ask ourselves some hard questions of what it is that we are to do as followers of Christ. We're asking some hard questions as a church. And and I will respond to that question in coming weeks about how we as a church, I think, can do even more to correct this, to challenge this. But today is about us personally. What can we do? And we must take our lead from God's word because it will help us and it will make the difference. So I want you to take your Bibles with me today and I want you to turn to the Old Testament. It's a book that Moses wrote. It's the book of Deuteronomy and we're going to begin in chapter 6 starting at verse number 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 4, says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. When he says these commands, he's basically retelling reminding, rehearsing the Ten Commandments. He's trying to make sure a fake legacy and a fake baton is passed 
to the next generation. And when he finishes verse 6, it's like he goes on a rip of the practical ways that you can make this happen. Let's begin in verse 4. If we're going to step up strong right now, which it is desperately needed, then we've got to go to verse 4 where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord Jehovah, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. He is establishing that there is no other God. Now remember, he is also reminding them of the Exodus and while they were in Egypt, they were under the direct domination of another God. And God proved himself as being almighty and all-powerful by delivering them from the authority of the false God of Egypt. And he is reminding them that there is no other God. But God Jehovah, the Lord, he is God, the Lord alone. Some versions say there is one God. Now that's a good challenging word for us right now. We need to hear that again. In a pluralistic society where now we are taught that there are many ways, we need to be reminded that there is one God. We need to have a radical reorientation of our hearts toward God and setting apart Him as the Lord of our homes. There is no way in this culture to lead a healthy family with just a mild dose of God. Sprinkling a little God dust here and there along the way. There must be a radical reorientation of our heart that says, He, the Lord, is God. He is the only God. There is one God, and He will be the Lord of this home. As in the words of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, the one God, the one true God. Everybody is going to believe in some kind of God. And it is not up to us, Moses is teaching, to decide. God, the Lord Jehovah, He and He alone is God. Humanism has its aim right on this truth. Relativism, hedonism, materialism, like an arsenal, is being in this in the sense of attack on this moral truth, on this biblical truth that comes from the authority of God himself. And if ever before we needed a sober reminder that he is God, it is right now, and we need to reorient our hearts that he is God. He's not just God on Sunday. He is the God of my heart. He is the God of my life. He is the God of my home. He is the God of the past, the present, and the future. He is the God of eternity. There is one God. He alone is God. That's verse 4. We start there. What's the response? Verse 5. It says, love him. That's the key. Love him. Love him how? Notice the sequence of words, and I think they're very strategic. Heart, soul, and strength. In America, we tend to lead with our mind. And so we have many who would embrace this as truth that they agree with. So they, they love God with their mind. But if they don't lead with the heart, they can agree with something they don't really practice. And when we agree with that which we don't practice, it leads to an inauthentic 
faith and kids can spot the phony a thousand miles away. We must lead with our heart. Love God with your heart. I was reading the story of a man who had an actual heart transplant. And he talked about the physical influence of having a heart transplant. How it, it is so much more than just thousands of quarts of blood flowing through 60,000 miles of blood vessels that, that when you have a heart transplant, you have this extraordinary honor to the donor. You have a great appreciation for life that otherwise you couldn't know. So there is this actual physical impact that you actually have a new heart and you're able to function physically. But he goes on to say, and it's been documented scientifically, that there's this metaphysical impact of a heart transplant. You get these new sensory responses, cravings, and habits. This guy who had the heart transplant says there, there are certain habits now in his life he didn't have before the new heart. And when I read that, I thought of how many points of connection in that story of a heart transplant that there is to that of a spiritual heart transplant. That when you come before God with your spiritual heart and say, I give you this old, cold, dead heart. The Old Testament says he will give you a heart of flesh for a heart of stone. The New Testament says he'll give you a new heart. And when he gives you that new heart, there is new life. You come alive and you have this great appreciation for the donor. It's called worship. You have this great zeal for life. Your future, there's a hope about tomorrow. And you have these new cravings and new habits because you've been transformed and you're being transformed into the likeness of the one who gave you the new heart. Love him with your heart. How is your spiritual heart today? Every decision you're going to make tomorrow is already decided in your heart today. The wise man says, out of the heart flow the decisions, the issues of life. That wellspring forms who you are. What is the, the love of your heart toward God? Is it, is it a first love? One God, one love. Challenge us to consider our spiritual hearts. Love Him with your heart. Love Him with your soul. That's the totality of your being. I mean, everything that we are. Everything we could ever hope to be. We're going to love the Lord with all of our soul. Every nerve ending. I mean, we're bringing the fullness of who we are. And in other words, there will be no area of life that is off limits to God. Love Him with your strength. See, when you love Him with your heart and your soul, I think it leads to strength that it's like a position. You're in a position of strength out of which you can respond to the flow of life. In the flow of life, there are challenges and opportunities. But because you're in a position of strength, you can seize the opportunity and you can persevere through the challenge. Let me explain. When you love God with your heart, you love Him, you lead with your heart, not with your mind, to where it's sincere love. You love Him with all that you are, no areas off limits. It leads to an emotional strength. 
and emotional stamina. And life demands a certain emotional strength, doesn't it? It leads to a relational strength because your relationships are blessed because you're making wise decisions because your heart's right and out of your heart you're making decisions and it leads to a relational strength. It leads to a financial strength because you're making wise choices and the blessing of God is on your life so you love Him with your heart and your soul and it gives you a position of strength. Now you can love Him out of that strength Now you've got an emotional margin of which you can care genuinely for other people. You you can empathize. You can step in to a situation and you can weep when they weep. You can walk with them through some difficulty because you've got some emotional space in which to respond because you are in strength, not weakness. See, if you have an opportunity financially, and you know it'd be a great opportunity if you bought something, invested in a certain way at a certain time, it would have a great return, but you have no money to invest, then you're in a position of weakness and you miss the opportunity. If we don't love God with our heart and our soul, then we're not in a position of strength and we can't seize the opportunity to help people because we have no margin emotionally. When we have that relational strength, we can help other people out of that strength. When we have that financial stability, then we're set poised to seize the opportunity. The very thing we want to do, the very thing we're led to do, we're able to actually do because we're in a position of strength. Many people, many times, we've all been there where we wanted to do things, but we couldn't because we were in a position of weakness. And we couldn't seize the opportunity because... We were not in the right position to respond. Love him with all of your heart. That's the starting place. Let there be no area off limits. All that you are, your soul. It'll move you to an emotional, relational, financial strength. Then you'll love him out of that strength. And you can sow strength into weakness. You can sow strength into need. You can seize the opportunity. And then God continues to bless that. And there is a veritable ocean of response and blessing of God on the investment of that strength of which you're loving God. Then he says in verse 6, and you're going to have to teach this word. So there's one God and we're to love him, heart, soul, and strength. And then we take his truth and we teach it. Every home is a law school. You, the parent, are the the professor. And this is the curriculum. And we teach. We live. And, And we'll talk about the ways to do that because Moses spells it out so powerfully and practically. But today the challenge is just to make sure that we are centering God as the God of our home. We're loving Him this way and we're passing on a heritage of faith. When Nehemiah rebuilt the wall and now he had a restored people behind the wall, he asked Ezra to stand and to teach the word. And Ezra starts rehearsing and reciting the word of Jehovah. And it says that many of the people, mainly the young generation, did not know the language of Judah because it had not been passed down to them. So they were on the outside looking in. There was an illiteracy as it related to the word of God. Therefore, there was a a weakness in their lives. And the threat 
that the faith baton would not be passed to the next generation. My grandparents were followers of Christ. My parents are followers of Christ. That does not guarantee that I would be a follower of Christ, but let me tell you what it does do. When you honor God, you are bringing your life under the influence of a covenant-keeping God. We think in terms here in America of contract. You buy a house and you have a contract between you and the builder. And if the builder honors his part of the contract, so be it. And if you honor your part of the contract, so be it. But if somebody defaults, the contract explains how the contract can be voided and somehow everything gets settled. We, we think contractually. And so, because we think contractually here in this country, when you bring two people to a church platform to lead them in exchanging vows to each other to be joined in marriage, they think contractually, and as long as you do your part, and as long as you do your part, we'll be good. But if not, we've already decided how we will dissolve this contract. The scripture knows nothing about contractual agreement when it comes to marriage. It's about covenant. Because God is a God of covenant. God hasn't entered a contract with you and me. God has entered covenant. And as we honor him, he has promised blessings down the generational line. You know what? We need to all be thinking about the future and have the long view that what we are and what we are doing right now it has a lot to do with right now but it has a whole lot to do with what will be happening 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years from now there is too much at stake right now to in any way have a cold love toward God we're going to see why the enemy has been fighting some of you so hard because the devil has the long view he knows the impact of your godliness on the future generations. So he'll work overtime to release this arsenal of hell against this one God kind of living and loving God with all of your heart kind of a living so that he can have us in such confusion and uncertainty that we have 61% of our kids who abandon the faith and then they make the biggest decisions of their life. So, a covenant-keeping God means he's got a blessing on the, the home. And so at a young age, I felt the conviction of God's presence in my life and opened my heart to Christ. And the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God just says, as my grandparents honored God and my parents honored God, none were perfect, but there was an authentic love for God. And as they honored God, it greatly increased the likelihood that I too would realize that Christ, he is the Savior, that he is the Lord and leader of life, and I would open up my heart and reorient my life around what he teaches, and then I could continue to pass that down. I remember my grandmother looking at me and saying, in this family, we are passing on a faith legacy. 
And the day comes where the faith baton of this family is going to be in your hands. And she said, don't fumble the faith legacy. I'm appreciative. Matter of fact, Kelly and I, because it's the same on her side of the family, Kelly and I strongly believe that the blessings of the Lord in our life didn't originate with us. There was a grandmother and a grandfather who honored God when it wasn't easy and had every reason to throw in the towel and and also abandoned the faith, but they held to God and they honored God and they loved God and parents that loved God and they passed on a faith legacy to us and now we can pass it on to our kids. And because we're saved doesn't mean they will be saved, but it greatly increases the likelihood that they too will open their heart and orient their life around Christ, who is God. Now, it brings up the obvious, doesn't it? What if your grandparents didn't know the Lord? What if your parents didn't know the Lord? What if you're here today and you've never accepted Christ? What for you? And if you'd say, you know what, Pastor? If you look at my family tree, not only did faith not come down the line, but a lot of dysfunction and pain and hurt did come down the line. And here I am. What do I do? Well, it's important that you look up the tree, but not your family tree, the middle tree, the cross on which Jesus Christ died, where he took all the sin and the hurt and the pain and gave himself as a sacrifice. And when you accept his provision for you, listen, you are born again. Get a new heart. You're born immediately into a family of faith where you have brothers and sisters. It's the word adoption, and it's one incredible, powerful, spiritual, theological truth. You are adopted. You become an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ, and you have brothers and sisters in the family of God, and even though no faith legacy came down, it can start with you. That's the good news of the gospel. And here's what's awesome. You then can be the starting point of a faith legacy and baton being passed on to the next generation. And here's another incredible important point, and this is, this is exciting. As I've studied people, Here's the power of grace. When you get saved, you not only start this legacy and can pass a spiritual, spiritual heritage down to the next generation, you can send some blessing up the line. Many people win their parents to Christ. Many people lead their grandparents to Christ. Many people lead their mother-in-law to Christ. <laughs> it doesn't flow down only, it also can flow up the line because with God there is no restriction, there is no boundary, there is no limit to the, His love. He can make the vilest sinner clean whether they're 65 or 16. The power of grace can change people's lives. 
So, here we have this scenario, and it means that we're all in one of two categories. We're either in the category where we've been handed the faith baton, and it is on us not to fumble. So we want to love God. Heart, soul, and strength. We want to pass on this faith heritage and live a compelling witness before our kids. Mom and Dad, if you've been under some spiritual warfare and pressure, don't you understand from the Old Testament, earliest days we see the enemy's attack on the kids. Because they can grow up and be the army of God, can be the influencers. They are the next generation. And so I pray, I pray that we would take this so seriously. When I went to my grandparents' home, to my mamaw's house, and you walk, if this was her front door, you walk into her front door, by the time you get to this front row, you've gotten to her back door. And over here was the other side of the house, and over here was, and that was it. It was this little white house on a couple of acres of land, and when I came out of college and Kelly and I were married, I pastored my home church. Now, let me just pause for a moment. That should be illegal. <laughs> See, I used to be 6'2", but I pastored my home church for about 11 years, and this is what happened. The wages of sin is smallness. So anyway, I'm there in my home church, and, and I get to pastor my memo. And I, could, I always knew when the Spirit of the Lord was moving in a service, because all I had to do is look at my, my mamma, because she knew the presence of God. And when I would go to her home as an adult, and I would leave her home, time and time again, the Holy Spirit reminded me, you just left the home of a very wealthy lady. She didn't have two nickels to rub together. There's no huge salary in her life or my grandfather's life. And here's the deal. I never knew what they made. All I know is they love Jesus. And stuff meant nothing to her. The only thing that mattered is whether or not we were loving Jesus. And honoring Jesus. And she made it clear just because she was an intercessor didn't mean we would be people of prayer. And just because she served God didn't mean we would serve God. We were going to have to find God for ourselves. But she set an atmosphere where the name of the Lord was like the banner flying over the home. And, and I don't care what I would ever do in life. I could, I could never be in a place where I didn't understand there was a God, there was one God, and you were serving Him or not. And I praise God for that. So to any of you, I don't care what you have or don't have as it relates to material possessions or your salary or your title. In this culture, we get tempted to think that the big game is about our title, is about our status, is about uh, our salary. When the Super Bowl of life is God being the center of your heart and the center of your home. Because 40 years from now, nobody's going to really care about your title. They're going to want to know about your testimony. Because it's your testimony that's going to give them a source of direction and orientation toward God. I'd rather have a testimony. 
So we're in one group of saying, okay, there's been a faith heritage passed down, and I, with passion, will honor God and pass on this faith baton. I will not fumble. Or you're in this category where it gets to start with you today. Today. It gets to start with you. He said, but you don't know how messed up I am. We all were there. Sinners saved by grace, and you can be saved today. And begin to orient your life toward God and His ways. And you will build a life and a legacy. And years from now, on some platform at some church, there will be somebody speaking God's word. Perhaps they will say, back in 2011, 80 years ago, on a Sunday in October, faith entered my family tree. And it was passed down to me. And I'm here today because they set me up to know that the Lord, He is God. And it starts with you. And it starts today. Love the Lord your God. The Lord, He is God. He alone. Love Him. With all of your heart. With all of your soul. With all of your strength. Live the life. Pass on a legacy. And the fire of your devotion will light the way for future generations.